Welcome to the podcast of the American Psychoanalytic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and this is Psychoanalysis and You. Our guest today is Stephen Marins. He is a child and adult psychoanalyst at the Yale School of Medicine, where he is the Harris Professor of Child Psychoanalysis and the Professor of Psychiatry and Co-Director of the Yale Center for Traumatic Stress and Recovery at the Yale Child Study Center. Dr. Marins has devoted much of his career to developing and implementing psychoanalytically informed responses to children, families, and communities traumatized by violent and catastrophic events including mass casualty school shootings, natural disasters, and COVID. He has developed model approaches to enhance developmentally informed police practices and police mental health collaborative approaches to those impacted by traumatic events, and is the co-developer of an early, brief, evidence-based treatment that has been demonstrated to interrupt and prevent the development of PTSD and related long-term disorders associated with failures of recovery from trauma. Both intervention models continue to be widely implemented in the United States and abroad. Dr. Marins has also consulted extensively with local, state, and federal leaders, as well as news media, regarding policy and practices that best address childhood trauma. Thank you so much for being with me. Pleasure today. to be here. So this is such an interesting and important topic in light of everything that has been on the news recently. Most recently, the shocking and devastating, really, death of Tyree Nichols and what police did, what we watched, what we saw, kind of traumatic, I think, as a nation in a way to see what happened and really speaks to the ongoing I think fear that communities have right now of police, certain communities more than others, and police have of communities, some more than others. So could we start with, and you've been doing this yet for a long time, it's not just now. So why did you start working with police? I started working with police in in many ways because the notion of trauma meaning the overwhelming of our usual capacities to defend, the absence of signal anxiety that prepares us to defend ourselves is undone when we're confronted, as Freud suggested, with the convergence between the worst of our nightmare scenarios that we all share and the unanticipated experience in reality of often involving violence and the most primitive experience of the instinctual expression of others. And in many ways, recognizing that the failure of recovery from acute traumatic dysregulation was a predictor for poor developmental outcomes and subsequent vulnerability to character pathology later in life actually led us to then scratch our heads and say, well, we're likely to never see these kids and families. And the first question was, well, who does? And the police are one of the few professions in this country that still make house calls 24-7. And they are particularly poised to potentially initiate and help support the recovery and the early identification and referral for treatment when indicated for the very kids and families 
to whom they're responding when they get calls for service involving violence and other catastrophic events. So the police have the potential to do this, to spot, mm -hmm. to refer, as you said, to identify. Did you find that that wasn't happening? Did you feel there was an intervention, particularly using, let's say, psychoanalytic concepts or thought, that we're in a position to make vis-a-vis -vis the police that could, could change that or that could enhance that? What, what is the kind of I mean, in, in many ways, the starting point is the model of psychoanalysis in the consulting room, which is it's a, a mutual endeavor. And it's about recognizing what we don't know and trying together to understand and appreciate not only the perspective of others, but actually to take on board what they know about phenomena about which we may share concerns. And so this was not about psychoanalysts coming to the rescue of the police. One of the most extraordinary experiences, which I didn't know, was how the best cops are like the best psychoanalytic clinicians, which is they're great observers. And actually, they're often able to see things that uh, people who work in the consulting room only would never imagine seeing. The other factor is that if we think about the phenomena of acute traumatization, where we're actually talking about dysregulation of the way our minds and bodies work, one of the central ingredients in psychoanalytic terms, the ego capacities or the prefrontal cortex capacities, are significantly undermined, which set and train this vicious cycle of increased levels of arousal, the inability to process information, make decisions, etc. And in many ways, the use of benign authority of the police serve a potentially and powerful role in stepping in and providing that auxiliary ego prefrontal cortex functioning. And that in and of itself is something that we learned that we, we didn't anticipate to begin with. So is this the kind of information that one might hope could become part of the training of police? In other words, you know, what we're not talking about today in news, right? We're talking about community fear of police a lot. I, I, I mean, that that is, you know, in, in many of these stories, you know, you should be afraid or should you be afraid if you are pulled over, if, if, if the police come to your home, if, if there's some intervention. But we hear very little about police fear in general. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're going through the community all the time in ways that must be very, very frightening. And as you're saying, from a, a psychoanalytic, but also, you know, just from a neuroscience perspective, right? They're put into fight, flight all the time, and, and what does that do to their processing and their ability to manage? So we know that, that affect and highest levels of affect tend to narrow our vision. And so part of what you're describing is also what is reported. And let me make perfectly clear that the abuses of police power is not only deleterious to the individuals, particularly the victims of murder, that are subjected to that abuse of power, um, it is a perpetuation of an expression of discrimination and injustice that is part of the fabric of our country. As my police friends and colleagues have said, that not only is police abuse of force terrible for the individuals and the communities that are most impacted because of the legacy and persistence, but it's also bad for good cops. Yes. So that what we don't read about 
And what we're not reminded of is that in the United States, there are over 660,000 police officers. There were 18,000 police agencies in this country. And yet, what draws our attention, and again, I think it's important that it draws our attention when these exceptions to what is largely effective, can be effective policing, our attention should be drawn because the confirmation of the worst elements police are the most visible representation of a broader society. And so when, when the worst elements of an entire community's experience is confirmed by this behavior, it's a terrible proliferation of suspicion, concern, and fear. From the policing side, it's also really difficult because in many ways, what we don't read about are all the amazing things that police officers do on a daily basis, including when they are better informed about what the meaning of behavior is that they're confronting on a regular basis. And a common human experience is, is that, you know, when we are made to feel helpless, and by that I mean when we feel that there is nothing we can do to protect ourselves from the intense feelings that are aroused by horrific confrontation with the most primitive of human instincts, we put blinders on and Unless we can feel more effective, those blinders stay on. And so in some ways, what we've developed is training for police officers, but also for clinicians, because we can't work in tandem if we continue to have this attitude that we, we think we have a, a monopoly on knowledge. We have a lot to learn from our police colleagues. And what we've learned from our police colleagues in our partnership has actually led us to learn more about what we even mean by trauma and the different phases of trauma. So can you give me a, a personal example of something that, you know, you experienced going in, working with a group or an individual police officer and them responding to you, working with you, that used the concepts, the clinical concepts that we, we aspire to, um, that was, you know, that made a change? Sure. I think the first part is how do we train each other? I, I spent hours and hours and hours for over a year uh, riding in police cars and actually seeing the world from the perspective of police officers. And they spent an enormous number of hours working with us, experiencing and observing, when possible, clinical interactions, learning about using their experiences in a series of seminars in which we would take examples from their daily interactions and in a developmental framework, actually help them unpack the experience and put words to their observations and help them to appreciate basic concepts of transference and displacement, for example. That's an important stepping off point. I'll give one very brief illustration. And this was a, the experience of a, a sergeant who had actually an extraordinary background. He was a Vietnam veteran and joined the force and worked in a inner city community neighborhood hit by all the adversity that we should all be aware of. And he actually knew community members already. The central theme of, of policing in New Haven at the time was a move away from anonymous policing to the fundamental principle that the best way to police is to form relationships. So in this particular example, but he was kind of a, one of these hard-bitten cops. He's a tough guy and um, actually didn't like some of the changes that were happening in the department, the reforms that were happening at the time. But he became one of the biggest proponents 
of the work. And one of the examples happened when he responded to a scene in which there was a domestic uh, between two adult women, in which one was um, stabbed the other uh, to death in front of a seven-year-old. And when the police arrived, the sergeant was the scene commander. And what they did immediately as they were interviewing the uh, survivor, the, a grandparent who had arrived on the scene, was they immediately, one of the officers had taken the seven-year-old off to a porch to protect the child. And the sergeant then, in our weekly, we have weekly meetings in which you're discussing this case, he says, you know, I, I felt awful about that because actually this child, the last thing she needed was to be away from the most important and safe figure that she could possibly have. And actually it was he that went back to that seven-year-old and grandmother to not only check in, but to actually share with them what he knew about the possible impact and about the clinical resources that might be available to help this girl who was indeed struggling mightily with the most intense symptoms of her post-traumatic uh, dysregulation. So giving the police officer or the police officer being able to acquire the tools to become the helper in this, to, to visualize themselves as helpers, really, which originally was supposedly what the police force was, you know, was for, right? To, to protect us, to help us, but has been framed in a very different light and probably in day-to-day -day doesn't often get to feel that way. Well, but I think, yes, I, I, I agree. And I think he, many officers who, with whom we've worked have been better equipped, as have we. Again, I think one of the things that's hard to, to imagine, unless one has the direct experience, because we don't read enough about it in, in the news media, which is about really how hard the work is. Police are not invited to people's homes to celebrate the joys of life. They are responding to calls in which, in domestic violence, which is one of the uh, most powerful impact on not only the adult victims, but also on the children who are exposed to this over and over again. They are responding to cases involving sexual abuse and physical abuse. They're involved in drug overdoses, etc. I think it's hard to imagine what it might be like to have that as your steady diet of response. And yes, the best officers sign on because they wish to serve and protect. If you keep responding to that repetitive diet and you actually feel that there's nothing you can do that can be effective in being helpful, it's not surprising that one response is to stop seeing and to stop identifying with or imagining the experience of the other. And so the clearing the scene as quickly as possible becomes the most viable option. The work that we've developed together with our police colleagues offers a different opportunity, which is, number one, to better understand the phenomena of what they themselves are experiencing, but more important, to appreciate the experience of the very people that they are responding to. And the other is to not feel that they are confronting these challenges alone. In the work that you do, is there any sort of understanding or working with them and understanding early life experiences they as individuals may have had 
that drew them to police work in in positive ways and in, in negative ways. Uh, I'm just thinking of analog work in general. So often we wonder, did this person choose this career as a sublimation of issues, conflicts that may be unconscious that are you still mean like psychoanalysts? Psychoanalysts, of course. You mean like psychoanalysts? Of course. The short answer is no. But I think that like with all of us, you know, when we're confronting again some of the most dramatic expressions of failures of sublimation, that we're all vulnerable to having our own experiences, often unconsciously aroused. And so rather than going at it in terms of inviting or asking for it, it does come up in some of our discussions, it's actually applying a, uh, and helping to arrive at a better purchase on what the experience is in order to free up a broader range of options in terms of one's own reactions. One example that comes to mind is uh, in, in one of our early seminars that are co-led by senior officers and clinicians. There was this one, and there were groups of like 10, 15 in, in the, each of the seminars. It was very developmentally, dynamically informed and taking their street experiences and unpacking them in the way I described earlier. And there was this one officer who had been very quiet throughout the seminars. And at one point, he raised his hand. And he said, and this was after a series of our meetings, and he said, you know, every single time I get a code 37, which is a domestic violence call, I feel my heart rate increase. I feel, and I have these images of arriving at a scene in which bodies are eviscerated, blood everywhere. And by the time I get to the scene, I'm just primed for action, sometimes in a way that feels more driven than I'd like it to be. And the first question That's an insight that, right there. That, but yes. exactly. The first thing that came from my co-leader, uh, who was then a lieutenant, says, have you ever had that experience? And he said, no. Then the next step was, so what's the impact? Have you ever told your partner that that's what's happening when you're speeding over to an address for an acute response? And what emerged out of the discussion was the understandable reasons that when he was feeling at his least in control was the time it was hardest and he was feeling most afraid or anxious. It was the hardest time to acknowledge it to himself, let alone to anybody else. But more important, it had implications in terms of strategy in dealing with the scene and being safer and being more effective in the work. It sounds like a session. Even though I understand you're explaining it's not, but the invitation to self-reflect, to ask these questions, to at a calmer time, be able to think about the time that wasn't and perhaps apply different strategies when it arises again, does sound like a session. Are there ways in which your work with the police, you've been able to also then translate to your clinical work? Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, um, it's increased my humility, and it's also expanded my awareness of the more fundamental role that figures of authority, particularly benign use of authority, executed by police officers, employed by police officers, that they're in a much better position to actually help to stabilize, psychologically stabilize, the very folks to whom they're responding in their most heightened levels of disorganization and, and high levels of arousal. I've also actually learned a lot more about 
what we mean when we talk about trauma. It's an overused term and learned a lot about the fact being with thousands of kids and families in the, in the after in the immediate aftermath and over a long term, that there are phases of traumatic response and that there are particular interventions that can be most effective in decreasing suffering at each of those phases, which is actually our observations in our work with the police led to the development of our early brief intervention, the child and family traumatic stress intervention, based on close observation, which is, again, a central theme and function, our analytic work in the consulting room. So you are looking at phases of trauma not in, in children and adolescents who might be community-affected people vis-a-vis their interaction with po- and then their interaction with police. But this is also the trauma and the different phases for the police officers themselves. Well, again, if we go back to the, the this notion of what do we mean by trauma, um, we define trauma as an, uh, an experience similar to what Freud said, but we've been able to elaborate if, as we've learned more about the neurobiological substrate, which is that there's an unanticipated situation of danger to the body, sense of integrity, that is unanticipated and overwhelming and specifically leading to the compromising, if not putting offline, signal anxiety and our defensive capacities that are, again, underlain by real basic dysregulation of biological, neurobiological activity that compromises our affective, cognitive, behavioral, and somatic experience. Given that, this idea of the experience of helplessness and loss of control that are central We need to remember that for officers who are well-trained, not just by us, but well-trained as officers, that they, at their best, are equipped to offer control and are able to experience the satisfaction of restoring order out of chaos. And I'm not suggesting that what they're exposed to doesn't have some impact. They do have the additional potential buffer of not having to feel completely overwhelmed and helpless. They have a role to fulfill. And when they're able to fulfill that role and define what that role is clearly, they're actually not as vulnerable to the immediacy of you know, post-traumatic difficulties. Having said that, the downside is, is that they don't have adequate support They don't have a culture that supports the expansion and capitalizing on their benign authority functions that can support the tendency to deal with the constant confrontation by putting blinders on and no longer seeing the human beings as fully as we would hope they always would. The challenges are absolutely there, but we've also learned that there are solutions that can enhance their ability to to really embrace what the motto of so many departments is, to serve and protect. That does lead me to exactly what I wanted to ask, which is you've seen the ways in which this has really been useful to actually police and community in New Haven. How amenable do you think other police 
offices across the country would be to implementing something like this? Well, we've been doing this work for over 30 years, and there have been many departments around the country that have adopted our model of collaboration or have developed their own. This was foreign ground when we first began working. It's no longer so foreign. And there are lots of ways in which the sentiments of our of, of the first chief we worked with, who was really quite a revolutionary, and is the recognition that the police can't arrest their way out of the very problems to which they're called upon to respond. And that's led to a, a broadening of, of recognition of that the cops can't solve our society's problems on their own, and if left to do so, they're not going to be successful, nor are we as a society. So I, I do think it's also important to note that the United States is a country of fads, and we tend to be politically and, and in policy uh, very uh, driven by, again, like all human beings, by the intensity of our affect, and to become very reactive in the moment, and often fail to take to scale some of the very work that's been done, not just by us, but by others that have demonstrated improved police functioning, improved police community relations. And the issues are myriad, but where we've actually learned the problem is, is that funding stops. There's a, a, a change in culture. There's a a change in, in, in the politics. There's an us versus them mentality rather than actually looking and tolerating the complexity of the problem and the possibility of solutions. So the short answer is, yes, I think it's possible, but I think it requires leadership and political will, but also psychological mindedness that allows us to appreciate, like with all human problems, the more upset and the more affective we are, the narrower our vision gets. And the problem with that is, is that when we can't see the whole picture, we can't see the whole menu of possible ways of addressing the problems in that picture. Well, Steve and Marins, let's hope people who can make some of these decisions are listening because it's such important work and clearly proves so valuable for potentially all communities. I'm very admiring. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. Thank you. And now for some Freudian quickies. You sent in your questions for an analyst, and I grabbed an analyst with an answer. How long does analysis take, and how do you know when a treatment should end? Okay, well, how long does analysis take? Obviously, it has a reputation of taking forever and ever, and analysts not wanting to let go of their patients, and people being afraid to end or feeling like they're going to get addicted to being in treatment. But actually, you know, I think the idea that it takes the time that it takes is the way to think about it. It's a project and it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Believe it or not, it does. And many of us think that the ending begins as soon as you walk through the door. You work and work and there comes a point in treatment where both the analysand, the person in treatment and the analyst, kind of know that the project that you came in with, the work has been done, and then you take the time to end. And let me also just say that ending is one of the most important aspects of this kind of work, but also of life itself. It's when things uh, come up in a, in a new way and allow us to really understand ourselves 
knowing that we're only going to have a short amount of time before it's all over, it really makes us appreciate it no matter how long it takes. How long does analysis take? It takes as long as it takes, and it depends on the length of a stride, as Freud said. If you have a question, really any question for a psychoanalyst, please send it to APSAPodcast at gmail.com, and we will try to feature it in a future Freudian quickie. For more information about the American Psychoanalytic Association, go to www.apsa.org. Till next time. Thank you for listening in today. Here at Psychoanalysis and You, and we at the American Psychoanalytic Institute, hope to introduce you to the many ways psychoanalytic thought affects the world around us, and especially you. Please leave any comments and requests for us at APSAPodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. And we will be back next month with another episode of Psychoanalysis and You.